Hi, I'm Richard, the founder of 10 Adventures, and this is the 10 Adventures podcast. Each week, we talk to real people about real adventures as they explore this incredible planet we all live on. Welcome back to the 10 Adventures podcast. One of the classic adventure books is Audrey Sutherland's Paddling North, which documents her summers spent paddling the Inside Passage from Ketchikan to Skagway, Alaska. It's an incredible book describing an incredible place. So you can imagine my excitement when I saw videos of another adventurer spending 72 days paddling the Inside Passage from Lund, British Columbia to this town of Skagway, Alaska. Here to share his story of paddling the Inside Passage is Chris Whitaker. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Richard. Thanks for having me on. So, Chris, last summer you did a pretty epic sea kayak expedition. Can you share a little bit about it? Yes. Last summer, a friend and I kayaked 1,600 kilometers from Lund, BC to Skagway in Alaska. This is the Inside Passage. What makes the Inside Passage such a special uh, trip for sea kayakers? The Inside Passage has become a bit of a pilgrimage for sea kayakers in the Pacific Northwest. It comes from the Klondike Gold Rush, where people were rushing up from Seattle all the way to Skagway in Alaska in order to get further north and find gold. And this trip then became a shipping lane and a cruise ship route. And then kayakers started to follow as well, either doing section by section or trying to do as much or the whole thing as possible. So it's a a big route, a bit of a pilgrimage that most paddlers want to try and do sections of throughout their lifetime. And uh, yeah, a friend and I managed to do it last year. And so Chris, you were sharing how you didn't even know about the Inside Passage until you were you were living in BC. And so what was the step from uh, hearing about it to saying, I want to spend 72 days on the water and doing it? It was a long time of daydreaming about the idea and deciding if it's something I was even capable of to try and learn a bit more about the route itself and the seas and any risks, challenges and dangers that might come up with that. And once I decided that it's something that I was capable of, I then reached out to a good friend of mine, Nuka, who I was guiding with that summer to see if he'd come with me. I realized that having someone with me would actually turn this trip into something that would be fun and enjoyable and a bit less of a a struggle. So reaching out to him, he was actually the only person I had in mind that I wanted to join because one, this person has to be capable of doing this trip. They have to be a good paddler and someone that has proven to do long distance kayaks before. And then two, being a friend of mine, I knew we'd be able to get on and would have a good time as we went. He's also done a very big trip himself. He had done a, uh, a kayak expedition from Montreal all the way down to Yucatan in Mexico. So a huge trip. So he's already proven he could do this kind of thing. And I had a feeling he'd be interested. So I uh, I reached out to him, asked if he'd want to come. And when we had our first trip meeting and he said yes, and we laid out a bit of a plan, I knew 100% it was on. Uh, that sounds incredible. What a great meeting that must have been to kind of float this, you know, what some would think is a, 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 an incredible journey. And, and then to get the affirmative uh, leading into it, how much experience did you have sea kayaking? Is this something that you'd done a lot of? I'd been working as a kayak guide for some years, since 2012. So I had experience in different waters, different parts of the world, guiding groups. 
But that's obviously very different from a trip like this because groups are generally beginner or intermediate kayakers. You're in fairly sheltered water because of that for a short amount of time. The biggest trip I had done was six days. I had experience on the water. I'd done a lot of guide training and got certifications for that and had tested myself in big waters. But it was never something I'd done for multiple weeks at a time, let alone two and a half months. And and you went from Lund in uh, the Sunshine Coast in British Columbia to the town of Skagway. How did you choose you know that start point and that end point? The end point of Skagway made sense because it's kind of tucked up and into the right in Alaska. It's a natural stopping point and it's the official end of the Inside Passage. The route itself came from the Klondike Gold Rush. So people were rushing up to Skagway to then go further up to try and get to the gold. So that was always going to be the stopping point. The start, Lund is close by to where Nuka and I were both working at the time. Um, I was on Quadra Island. Nuka was on Vancouver Island a bit further up. Um, so we wanted to start in that area. We were also planning to go in 2020. And Nuka still lived in that zone. But obviously, we all know what happened. Everything had to postpone um, for some time. So it ended up we started in Lund because I had a good friend with a property quite close to the water there. So he allowed us to use that as a bit of a, a base before we began. So we could get things sent there and, and start the trip from there. So that was another bit of a hassle to figure out was that by the time we started, neither of us actually lived anywhere nearby. <laughs> That's, you know, crazy. Just the disruption of, of COVID. So, you know, you were planning to do this in 2020. What was the planning and preparation for, you know, to do it in 2020? And then what changed, you know, delaying it by two years? A big part of the prep for me was to try and build our social media presence and then using that to find sponsors for some gear, which would then keep our costs down. So that's what I was predominantly working on. Nuka, he was then in charge of figuring out the logistics of food and meals. So he was looking at each town along the way, so A to B, B to C, C to D, and so on, and would then break down the journey into those manageable sections and figuring out how much food we might need for each bit. So he was working on dehydrating meals for that. Um, and I was just trying to grow our presence, which would then make it easier for other things. So we were starting to build a gear surplus and we're getting ready to do our 2020 launch um, in May. Then obviously around March was when we realized it wasn't going to happen. There's just too many risks. We're not supposed to be traveling. It's just obviously a bad idea. By postponing it, it actually gave us more time for that audience building, for the planning, for the preparation. I actually do think in hindsight, we were in a better position by the time we went out. It just meant being a bit more patient, trying to sit tight and, you know, obviously <laughs> saying to our friends and family, we're definitely doing this thing. We just don't know when it's going to happen. So I'm really interested in in how you plan the, the food uh, on such an epic uh, sea kayaking voyage. It, because I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure just how far apart the towns and the villages where you can resupply are. But how, how would you look at like, what was the longest time you'd go without a resupply? And then also, could you also, uh, you know, fish and get, you know, get food from the sea? Or was everything dehydrated and prepared in advance? I think the longest we went was around 11 or 12 days, usually about a week and a half or a bit longer between the towns. Our food 
was always better just as we left the town. We'd really load up. We'd have all of the all of the luxuries with the cheese and hot sauce and various other things. As we went further and further from a town, you know, the meals started to get a bit more basic. We started to run out of some of the good snacks um, and would slowly whittle down to just the, the real basic dehydrated meals as we went. Obviously, going to a town, it means you can get fresh vegetables as well. So some fresh veggies in the lunch is always is always nice. Um, so we would have some fresh food when we began, but it just takes up a lot of space. So the bulk of the meals would be dehydrated, um, pasta dishes, um, curry, that kind of thing. Uh, lunch was always tuna wraps with cheese, hot sauce, and some spinach or whatever vegetable thrown in. Um, we did think about fishing. It's something I really wanted to be able to do. But I then read a Inside Passage guidebook that suggested not to fish. And the reason for that is that one of the biggest dangers on the land, at least, is the grizzly bears. You know, you're going through grizzly country the whole way. So if you're catching fish, you're basically covering yourself in the smell of what they're looking for. And there's just no way you're going to get rid of that smell um, out on a campsite. Even if you go and cook your fish way on the other end of the beach, it's still just a a smell that's going to linger on you and it's just another hazard that could potentially bring a bear into camp. So for that reason, we decided not to fish. Um, we'll just avoid the hassle of that whole thing and just stick with our dehydrated meals. Yeah, it's crazy. It's one of those things, as someone who's never done it, you never even think of, oh yeah, you don't want to be smelling like fish because you don't want you know, some angry grizzly trying to rip open your tent in the middle of the night because they think you're an enormous salmon. Uh, I can imagine that challenge. Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, it would have been a great thing to do. And it's, you know, the salmon capital of the world, you know, going through there, people fly from all over to go and fish salmon. But yeah, it just seemed uh, too risky. And then also the effort of actually doing it, getting to a campsite and fishing and then cleaning the fish and doing this and that, you know, you're so drained and exhausted from the day's paddle that just having the quickest meal possible and then just sitting there and looking at the view was all you can manage. So, so some people may not be familiar with the sea kayak and, and uh, you know how it works and also how much gear you can you can carry. Do you want to maybe give just a little overview for people who who haven't ever sea kayaked? What is it like and how is it different from maybe like a river kayak if they're familiar with that? The sea kayaks we use, I think they're about eighteen feet long. Uh, we had two single kayaks, so we had a boat each. You're sat in the middle like a normal kayak but it's then a long, narrow boat. And the ones we used were made out of fiberglass. So they're very light and easy to carry because you're gonna have so much stuff in them. So the front and the back are storage hatches. So the whole thing's hollow and it's got these bulkheads that um, section it off. Inside the front storage, you can fit all of the food for the group, some clothes, whatever else you may need to do. And then in the back side, you can have all your camping gear in there. So I had a hammock. Nuka, he had a tent and then just loaded up with everything else we may need. So, yeah, we just about could cram in two weeks worth of supplies. And, you know, we ate well. It was a big part of our trip from the offset. You know, we decided we wanted to enjoy this. We weren't just going to go bare bones and eat cans of beans every day for <laughs> two and a half months. You know, we wanted to be eating well. We wanted to have a drink at the end of the day. We wanted to enjoy the whole thing. So, yeah, we, we maybe had some luxuries with the food and with some drinks that we took. But in terms of other things like clothes, I remember a, 
a funny conversation with me and Nuka right at the start or before we began. He sent a packing list over to me, like a suggested packing list, and he had put only two pairs of socks. And I questioned this. I thought that's a bit bit odd to only bring two pairs of socks on this 72-day trip. And, you know, we had a discussion about it. And at the end of the day, everything you bring is going to get dirty. Nothing's going to stay clean. It's all going to be used. And then you just have 10 pairs of dirty socks that are now strewn about your kayak. So you kind of see things in that way that everything needs a purpose. You don't need more than one or two things that has the same purpose. And you start to just whittle down all the gear into only the essentials because there's just no room for anything more than that. Yeah, I feel like that's every single, uh, everyone who goes on a big trip, you know, if you're trekking or cycling or, or kayaking, you realize that you just don't need that much stuff. And, and as you said, having a nice drink, you know, having a bottle of wine one night uh, is way, way more valuable than an extra pair of socks, which you'll uh, ultimately never need because they'll just get dirty with all the other socks. Yeah, totally. Once you break it down into your wet gear and your dry gear, make sure your wet gear always stays wet and you just wear that when you kayak. Your dry gear never gets wet. Then uh, you don't really need much more than that. So as long as you always, always have something dry to change into at the end of the long day, then you're fine. You had 72 days along this journey, but what was an average day like for you? An average day, we'd usually wake up, I think, around 6 o'clock or 6.30. We'd get the coffee on, get breakfast going. Uh, whilst that's happening, or even before it, we'll get our campsite packed away and just carry everything from where we were sleeping over to the main sort of living area or dining area, whatever you call it. We'd get breakfast ready, eat that, then pack up the rest of the camp, get that into the boat, um, and then get on the water. It would usually take around an hour and a half or two hours from when we woke up to when we're actually on the water. There's just so many jobs that need to be done in an order and everything just kind of takes time. So it's kind of hard to be much quicker than that. But we get on the water, paddle for about two hours and then take a break just to stretch. Then another two hours, find lunch. Another two hours, take a break. And then that last two hour section is when we start to look for a campsite. So we'd usually be on the water for about eight hours every day. And in that time, we'd cover an average of about 25 to 30 kilometers, depending on the weather and which way the tide is going. And we'd search for a campsite based on what I would have researched the night before, looking at the charts, looking at the maps, just for an area that looks like it might have a river would be a bonus, that it's flat obviously is great. And then it needs to have a spot for me and my hammock and nuka in his tent. We'll then get to the next campsite. Make sure it's safe, you know, shout, make sure there's no bears, there's no uh, signs of bears around as well. And then we set up camp, start working on dinner, and the process repeats. So there's always something happening. Uh, the thing to do is to kayak, so we'd kind of fill the day with kayaking. You don't really get any prizes for getting to a campsite early because you just kind of sit around. And um, a lot of the campsites are quite tucked in to the bluffs. They could be a lot of foliage or cliffs or whatever. So you can't necessarily hike and walk around and explore. So you kind of just walk a little bit and just do the jobs that needs to be done and sit down, relax, read a book, sometimes even watch a movie. If I have enough battery on my phone, get something downloaded on Netflix and just kind of take it all in and do it all again. You know, for me, it was, you know, when I read, um, I read the book by uh, Audrey Sutherland and then my limited experience 
uh, doing sea kayaking uh, around Tofino, it was always the evenings where you had like a campfire and you're on the beach that were such good memories. But from what you're talking, it doesn't seem like the camping side, and at least in my case, we didn't do hard days like you did. But was the camping like a nice part for you? Or is that just, hey, we're taking a break. We finally have some time off. Uh, this is just a time to recharge and, and get some jobs done. We did find some incredible campsites and we totally had time to, to take it all in. My point being more that if you get to the campsite, say before four o'clock, you're probably going to be there for about six hours until you actually go to sleep. So it's better to fill the day by moving. And then when you get to that campsite, you know, you do your evening tasks and make dinner. You have plenty of time to, to take it all in. But yeah, we had some really incredible ones. And we also had some not so incredible ones that we kind of just got by with. But some of the, the best ones, you know, we'd, we would have a flexible schedule. If we wanted to push the next day back, we would do. There was one morning in particular where we were at the north end of Princess Royal Island, which is in northern BC. And this campsite was a stunning there's high cliffs with two waterfalls dropping down behind us. And the cliff just goes straight down. And then there's a small plateau, which is where we were camping. And then it drops straight down into the ocean again. So very, very deep. And this morning, I was walking along the beach and I hear a, <laughs> which is the blow of a humpback whale, about 10 meters from the shore. So I run back and I say to Nuka, like, did you see that whale? That was incredible. He's like, what whale? And as I was explaining about the whale that was right there, over his shoulder, I see three of them, three humpbacks, all surface with their mouths open, straight out of the water. And I shout, turn around, turn around. And he spins around and he sees it as well. And we realize that these humpbacks are bubble net feeding right in front of our campsite. So we run and grab our cameras. We sprint over. It's a low tide as well. So we're like right on the water's edge, just where it drops off. And we watch these humpbacks bubble net feed for about one hour all in the bay in front of us, like 10, 20 meters away. And then they go down the bay and then back again. So we just sat there with our chairs pulled up, sipping our coffees, just taking photos. And that day, you know, we're in no rush to leave. We just sat there and, and pushed the whole day back and enjoyed that campsite for sure. Uh, that sounds that sounds absolutely incredible. What a fortunate experience. Yeah, that was uh, that was one of the highlights of the trip for me, for sure. I'm familiar with how the body aches on, you know, starting bike trips and doing trekking, but doing this type of trip, if someone's never done, you know, a multi-day sea kayaking trip, you know, what, what parts of the body can they expect to get achy as, you know, body gets into paddling shape? The main aches and pains for me, at least would come from my lower back, just from being seated for so long. The paddling itself, it's not too much of a strenuous activity but it's not at such a high level like whitewater kayaking or something. You're not sprinting. You're just going at a leisurely pace, a pace that you can manage. So you kind of slowly ease into it and build those muscles. There's some windy days, obviously, where it is a bit of a, a strain, but the main aches and pains come more from just sitting in the boat for such a long time. If you're, And that's why I would be taking those two-hour breaks because any longer than that, you just get so stiff and sore. So you'd often take your feet off the pedals, try and stretch out whenever you can. And then the camping as well, which is why I sleep in a hammock. I find it more comfortable for my back. When I camp on the ground, I'm a side sleeper. So it's quite uncomfortable for my back and my shoulder. So I guess the, the aches and pains come more from 
the seated position and the camping rather than the actual activity of kayaking itself. I never thought about, never thought about that. When you were uh, doing this trip, you know, everyone thinks of these beautiful ideas of, you know, seeing whales or this beautiful inside passage, the, you know, the mountains and the trees and, and the ocean. But for you, what was the most rewarding part of the trip? I think the biggest reward of the whole thing was just to set my sights on such a huge target and to be able to follow through and do it. The sense of fulfillment and satisfaction of just telling everyone about this trip. And like I mentioned earlier, I'd never even heard of the Inside Passage. Kayaking to Alaska, just to the border, sounded nuts. So to then be able to share with my friends and family back home about this thing that I'm doing, it has sounded so crazy and so wild. And to even get to the Alaskan border, I remember sending a message home and saying, we're in Alaska now. And someone was like, oh, so you're, you're done. Like you're there early. I was like, no, no, the border is halfway. Like we still have <laughs> just as much to go. And like that was how, I guess, removed the, the trip is for people back home. You know, we have no idea about the inside passage and the distances and the geography. So I guess the biggest thing for me was just to do such a massive task and to, I believe, do it so well. I'm really happy and proud of how Nuka and I documented the thing, how we did it. We, you know, we, we both loved it. We had such a great time. Um, it was just epic in every way. And, and you mentioned you didn't know if you're going to be able to do it. Were you uncertain because of just like the physical effort or like the technical challenge? Because it looks like parts of this route are, you know, somewhat exposed to open water where I've been in small, tiny waves and it gets a bit, you know, a bit frightened. I couldn't imagine being in large waves. But like, you know, what was your worry about about why you, you may not be able to complete it? I think more from the planning of something so massive. It's just such a step up from anything I'd done before. I don't come from a background of outdoors uh, in my childhood. I got into the outdoors after I finished high school um, as an adult, as a way to travel and see the world. I started working in the industry and then started to learn more and more. So all of my outdoor adventures had been through work. They'd been very sheltered, I guess. Um, nothing so big as this. And you know, I'm comfortable in a kayak. I've done enough training. I, I thought I'd be fine with the difficulty. But I guess just the scale of it, uh, the planning for something that big, you know, to plan that many meals for that many days in a row and to get the navigation correct. Like I knew how to navigate. I'd done it in training and I'd done it in courses. But to actually use it practically for weeks at a time in areas where you cannot get it wrong, because if you mess up, it, it is dangerous. Um, so I guess just to it's kind of that whole imposter syndrome thing, you know, you, you don't know you can do it until you do it. And you wonder if you are the right person for it. But then once we got into it, once we started, you know, we had our first navigational hazard in just a couple of days going through Surge Narrows, which is a big rapid like area from the tide. Once we got through there and we nailed the timing, we we're bang on slack water when it all goes calm. We got through there and I've, that was just a huge relief. I knew we could do this the navigation was bang on. We've got what it takes. It's going to be okay. So I guess it was just the little doubts beforehand, just wondering, are we ready for this? And I think we were actually, uh, we were we were over, well, not over prepared. We were definitely prepared and we were ready for it. 
And and so at the end of this trip, you've created this epic web series that kind of documents your your experience through episodes. What what caused you to to take this incredible journey and want to share it uh, on YouTube? A number of reasons. It's a huge amount of work to document the journey, to not only do it, but to actually think about filming it and what we filmed and is the story obvious to people watching and to then actually edit the whole thing. Um, I started editing it in December and the last episode came out like a month ago. So it was a, a huge task to add on to what is already a huge task. But we were really keen to do it for a number of reasons. One being for Nuka and I to have that memory forever. You know, as we grow old, we can look back on it and watch the journey. And I've already rewatched the series multiple times. Whilst I was editing it, I'd watch each episode like 10 to 15 times. And I've then watched them all again since being on YouTube. So yeah, I'm already reliving it now. Another reason to show our friends and family back home, just to show them what we've been going on about for all this time, you know, for us to disappear. Well, I, I disappear from my life quite often, but for Nuka to disappear from his family for two and a half months and then just reappear, you know, it's great that he has something to show for it to take them on the journey as well. And then another factor as well, we wanted to share this with other people who are thinking of doing the same trip. Maybe not the whole thing, but if you're thinking of doing a couple days on the inside passage or going to BC, renting a kayak or taking a tour or going to Alaska to see Alaska on a whale watching boat or whatever it may be, just to share this as a bit of a resource that people could use. They can see parts of the trip, see parts of the journey. And I've already had a whole load of people get in contact with me, either by email or on social media. Um, they've watched the series. They're doing the Inside Passage either next year or in a couple years' time. And they've already used it as a resource and they have a load of questions about this and that. And it's just really cool that it will be a tool that other people can use and look at. We hope it will become almost like a necessary reading, like a guidebook. If you want to do this trip, read this guidebook, watch the For Fun's Sake series, and then that will give you a really good idea of what you've got ahead of you. So yeah, there are a number of factors. And yeah, so it was really fun to, to make and to edit and to now get such nice feedback from people all over the world that made it part of their regular viewing. We released the episodes every Wednesday at the same time. So people would just sit down on a Wednesday and they'd watch the episode and you know, get all these nice messages of people and all these questions they had of what happened and this and that. So yeah, it was really cool to experience all this aftermath from it. And I can I can attest it's it's great view and it really is inspirational to go and explore this part of the world that um, it's not easy to get to, um, but it is just beautiful to to see you know this inside passage the combination of the water and the nature and the wildlife it, it really is a is a special place. Uh, my question is when people contact you they say we're doing the inside passage. Uh, do you have any advice you give them? Yeah, well, it's a good question. It depends on where they're coming from. A lot of people ask quite specific questions, usually asking for campsites. That's probably the biggest one. People ask for campsites. But if anyone was thinking of doing such a thing, the biggest advice is just to paddle in big water and challenging conditions and just imagine the most gray, rainy, miserable days possible because those days will happen and there'll be a lot of them all in a row. 
And if you've already put yourself in that place of expecting it to be like that, any time the sun comes out or any time you don't get a gray, cold day, you're just instantly uplifted and it's a huge surprise because it's more than what you're expecting. So it's definitely tough and it's cold and you get some long days, but it is so rewarding if you do that and you just want to be overprepared. Like I mentioned, just really be sure of yourself and sure of your planning and then that way you get to enjoy the whole thing rather than struggle or survive as you go through. It's definitely not a place to survive. You want to try and enjoy it. Now, uh, I imagine a lot of people watch this series and think, I, I want to go do this. If someone has never been sea kayaking before, is there like, and you mentioned you used to do lead multi-day trips, where would be some good options to look at that might be suitable for a beginner to do, you know, a long weekend trip or a one week trip that are accessible uh, along the route you did? A really great place is off of Vancouver Island. It's a incredible area for wildlife. There's a ton of humpbacks, killer whales. There can be dolphins that go through there as well. So finding a place on Vancouver Island in the summertime can be great. And I can also plug my own trips that I've started taking group tours out myself to different parts of the world. Uh, so the closest place to the area for North Americans would be in Baja in Mexico. I take groups there every April. And there's a whole load of dolphins there. And those are great beginner trips because it's warm weather. The water is really nice. Uh, the sun's shining, hot sandy beaches. So it's a really great place to intro into sea kayaking in a comfortable way where everything is handled for you in terms of food and preparation. And then there's a chance to ask as many questions as needed to then prepare yourself for future trips. Uh, I'm sure there'd be some great, uh, great stories you can tell over the campfire every night about uh, the inside passage or other trips you've done as well. Yeah, the best stories never make it to air. You have to come <laughs> and raise in person. Um, on your website, it says you're in a mission to lead a more fulfilled life, which I think is really interesting. And, and what a lot of people are, they're searching for more than, than just the nine to five. Um, but for you, what does leading a more fulfilled life mean? I've noticed so many people I know and people out there the life is kind of set up in a way that was always told as the way to do, which is, as you say, get a nine to five, work really hard, earn just enough money to feel like you're progressing, but not really enough to actually do anything or to level up. And people live that way forever until they hopefully retire and then they start living their life after retirement. But that's a huge risk, in my opinion, because not everyone makes it that far. And when you do get that far, you might not have the physical health to enjoy your life and to do the things you want to do. So in my eyes, a fulfilled life is one that is full of experience. You're following your passions, you're following your purpose, and you're just being creative and enjoying life as you go. And for me, that mostly revolves around adventure travel and outdoor sports and being in nature. Everyone's different, but that's what I like to do. And I realize from people contacting me, seeing what I've been doing on Instagram or social media, and people reach out and ask, like, what is it I'm actually doing and how am I doing it? Because in their eyes, I'm not actually working. It looks like I'm just on holiday the whole time. That's why I set up my own adventure tours and expedition company was a way to help people who wanted a bit more out of their own lives, who are, you know, busy with their work and their career, which is what people just have to do to survive. But they want to experience a bit more at the same time 
but don't have the time to plan it or to do it themselves. So that way I can arrange and organize these trips for them. They can just turn up to a place like Baja, Mexico and do a six day kayak trip, or they could go to Tanzania in Africa and climb Kilimanjaro and go on a safari or go kayaking in Belize or a number of these other locations that I'm starting to add on. So it's just a way that for me, I get to fulfill what I feel is my purpose, which is adventure travel, enjoying nature, seeing the world and getting these cultural experiences with different groups of people and for them to hopefully get a bit more out of their own existence and start to enjoy what life is all about now rather than waiting until later. You know, it's funny. There's a concept called, uh, I think it's regret minimization. And the idea is often, you know, as you say, people retire and they say, oh, I'm going to do all these things when I retire, but they've got bad knees or bad hips or they're not comfortable going to the tough places. And, you know, again and again, you're people saying, oh, I wish I'd done that when I was earlier. And and how you describe, you know, kind of your your thinking about a more fulfilled life, it's it's really kind of like the ability to look back on your life and have done the things that are important to you and not always, you know, delay them. It's it's kind of taking more control of your life is is what I hear. Regret minimization. Yeah, I've never heard that term, but that is exactly it. hundred percent. Yeah. Do the things now or if you can, yeah, work towards doing those things sooner rather than later, because yeah, not everyone will be capable when you get to that age. And I think everyone is always just waiting for that perfect time, you know, like I'll start on Monday, or I'll start next year, but there's always another thing that comes up, you know, you're always working towards another promotion, or you have a kid, and now you're busy, or you have another kid, and then you're even more busy, or you're saving up for a house. Those things never end. That's just part of life as well. So I think you need to find that balance of, you know, doing the jobs that you need to do to have structure and safety and security, but also remembering to enjoy it as you go, because you only get one shot at this. And unfortunately, not everyone will even make it to retirement. And when people do retire, they often don't even enjoy it anyway. Uh, I, 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 lo I love that message. Just, you know, make 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 your life meaningful for you and so uh, i want to i want to say thanks for sharing your trip in the inside passage also sharing these ideas on life i think it's really uh really insp inspirational and, and helps a lot of people who maybe don't know if if they're comfortable taking the step out of you know the nine to five and pursuing something that's more meaningful to them and so thanks for coming on the show today chris and sharing sharing your trip and your ideas yeah thanks so much richard it's always a pleasure to talk about the trip. You know, it's a, a huge thing that I'm very proud of. So I love speaking about it to anyone that will listen. And if people want to get more inspiration, where can they find uh, your videos or, or find you on social media? You can find me at Global Shenanigans. Uh, you can just Google that and it'll come up with most things. But Instagram is at Global underscore Shenanigans. And you can find the kayak trip it's called For Fun's Sake Expedition. So if you search For Fun's Sake on YouTube, uh, you'll be able to find the whole nine-part series online. And so I'll put links to both of those in the show notes. Uh, and if it is, it's youtube.com slash at F-F-S-E-X-P-E-D-I-T-I-O-N if you're really good at, at listening to letters and, uh, and remembering them. Uh, and with that, thanks for listening to this episode of the 10 Adventures podcast. We'll be back next week to explore the world and hear about more epic adventures.
Listen to other episodes of the 10 Adventures podcast on Amazon Music at amazon.com slash 10 adventures.